Hi friends, this is Katie Lee. So all of us in the Twin Cities are on the edges of our seat right now. With the trial of Derek Chauvin going on, the recent murder of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, with a nice gentle background of mass shootings around the country going on, the city is boarding up with plywood all over the place and the National Guard stand on every street corner like one big divisive barricade. As we're together, not so patiently waiting and figuring out the outcome and praying for our pastor friends in Brooklyn Center and South Minneapolis and people all over the country, I've been thinking about how much we need to remember that the work of our lives and the work of justice are bigger than this particular moment, even if this particular moment is very important. I've been asking my elders lately for wisdom in what they've been learning, what they have learned from their past work in civil rights movements during their lives. I thought about this conversation Malachi and I had with Dr. Yolanda Williams last summer about her experience with racism and her various relationships with the police departments throughout her life in Minnesota. And for whatever pandemic-y reasons, I never finished editing this conversation until now. The conversation feels just as relevant today as it was last summer. I hope you enjoy and learn as much as I did from talking to Dr. Yolanda Williams. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Pastor Malachi and Reverend Katie Lee uh, at our podcast Connectional. And this afternoon, we have the privilege of our esteemed guest, uh, the Reverend Yolanda Williams, uh, who is, are you... uh, an elder, a licensed local pastor? I'm going to be commissioned in October. Congratulations. So I'll be right. probationary. Yeah, so a soon to be newly commissioned uh, provisional elder in the Minnesota Annual Conference, this conference. Correct. Uh, Correct. We are so happy to have you this afternoon. Thank you for taking the time to come and speak with us. And I think that uh, this interview will be quite fruitful and useful for the people who will choose to listen to it. Thank uh, you. Thank you for having me here. So why don't you just start by just telling us whatever, whatever you want us to know about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up. Okay. That sort of thing. Great. I'm, um, I was raised primarily in Gary, Indiana, and um, as a Missouri Senate Lutheran, mind you, I've been in a lot of different denominations, so I, I consider that United Methodism should consider themselves fortunate because I have chosen to be in a lot of different denominations before I finally <laughs> came back to United Methodism. But... Um, I came to Minnesota first in the 70s to go to Hamlin University, so I was steeped in United Methodism there at least. Um, had planned to be a minister at that point, but I, and people always laugh when I tell them this story, I went on a retreat with a bunch of women who were seminarians, and it was a treat, retreat for women who were considering the ministry and they completely turned me off from the ministry. So I said, no way am I gonna go to a seminary if you come out of it and you have no idea what you believe, if you believe, who you believe, no way. So I'm going to do what I call an uncollared ministry, where I was gonna minister, but I'm not gonna have the collar. I'm just gonna do, sneak all the way through the cracks of the public, whatever, uh, separation of church and state. What was it that turned you off? You said it was people's, uh, you said it was people's, like, just... There was, I I, I don't have a problem with questioning, uh, because I think that 
a Christian should never get to the place where their assurances don't allow for questions. Mm, yeah. But they were completely lost in my mind. You know, of course, this is a young, you know, stereotypical mind, right? So I have, I'm not as open as I probably am now, but at the point they, you know, they didn't know if they believed the Bible, they didn't know if they believed that there was a God, they didn't know if they believed that there was a Jesus, and I thought, and why aren't you working at the post office or working as a teacher or working in an ambulance driver? Mm -hmm. Why are you choosing to be a minister if you really don't believe or know if you believe any of the basic tenets. Mm -hmm. And I, in my mind, assumed it was that the seminary had stomped that out of them. Yeah. <laughs> because having gone to Hamlin as a religion major, I know how heated the discussions can be and how there is a push through the academic look at religion and even Christianity to make you um, could make a person not believe anything if you don't have a foundation of your own and see that this is a way to explore rather than a way to debunk. Wow, yeah. I love that. I do feel like the we're clearly doing something wrong in graduate schools in general where most of my friends who've gotten graduate degrees in anything don't really want anything to do with the subject matter anymore when they're done. And it's like, it seems like when you get your PhD or your math, like if you're trying to master a topic it seems like it should make you more interested in the topic rather than just burn you out well and, and that would be true if the people in uh, higher ed were actually teachers mm -hmm. okay so two-year schools is about working on the craft of teaching four-year institutions of the craft of research and what I find in the higher ed is that people, because they don't know how to teach, they teach the way they were taught. And if you had a particularly good teacher, you know, a very inspiring teacher, then of course you're gonna try to bring that out. But if you had someone that just brutalized you, and a lot of them do, that's the way you think education should be done. Wow. So what did you end up um, going into then? You were serving, serving not as an ordained person, but did you, what, what I did a lot of jobs. I was a community organizer, uh, one for the city at one point, one for the fourth precinct at another point. Um, I was the director of minority programs at Hamlin for a while. I was a director of a fine arts organization on the north side. I did women's rights. I did all kinds of things. And then I finally settled into teaching at Minneapolis Community and Technical College and at the University of Minnesota. And so that's where I kind of stuck for the longest time um, at MCTC, 28 years. The U, I think I'm coming up on my maybe 15th year of teaching, yeah. teaching there. So I, and I was perfectly happy to do that. And so I got a master's in vocal performance and I got a PhD in music education. I was perfectly happy. I thought this is what I was gonna do, get tenured, work at a four-year institution, and that was gonna be it. And 
the day after I got the email from the U saying, your dissertation has been accepted, congratulations. I'm brushing my teeth and I can hear this knock, 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 knock. What about your original commitment to me? And of course, the first thing I said was, you could have told me before I did a PhD. Kids, <laughs> that was a lot of money, that was a lot of work. And I would have gladly not have done that. <laughs> If what you really wanted me to do was an MDiv, that would have been nice. So, um, but trying to be the obedient child, um, I immediately started looking into seminaries that are around town because by that time I already had a house and I wasn't planning on going somewhere else to do an MDiv. And um, by the end of the week, I was enrolled at United. Oh my gosh, by the end of the week. Huh? <laughs> yep. I figure when you get a knock like that, you'd better respond quickly. Yeah, what does that <laughs> knock look like for you? I love that's just that's amazing. What is it, just a just kind of a a voice a heel? A heel? It was yeah, it was a voice in yeah. my head, and I and I knew that. Yeah, I had made that commitment. You know, years back when I was sixteen, I had made that commitment, and that was why I went to Hamlin, and that I was going to do that major. And I let myself be derailed from that. So it made perfect sense that at some point in my life, the reminder that that was my original commitment would come up. I, I like the language you use, particularly around feeling called and feeling like you felt God like sort of knocking. Because I found in seminary and even sometimes now uh, that many of my like white or non-black colleagues like hear that kind of stuff and it feels like a little too supernatural for them. Yeah, heebie-jeebie. Right. Yep. But I find that like a lot of <laughs> black people and black culture, we've always grown up with the idea of God being like an active figure in our lives and sort of being taught that like when God pulls you, eventually it's in your best interest mm -hmm. uh, to move. What do you think or do you have any thoughts about what it is about our culture in particular uh, that makes us more open to the idea of God being an active presence in our life? Yeah, well, I think it's fascinating because on the one hand, um, it is our survival techniques and the remnants from our varied African religions and spiritualities that have allowed us to survive, um, that have made it possible to know that there is a spirit world and that spirit world is always active and you can choose to ignore it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think for many Europeans and American, white Americans, that is also a part of their culture as well. But it's been forgotten and it's been kind of pushed aside for a reliance on science as if science is the end-all be-all. And I, I always chuckle because people who rely so much on science, it's like if science was so exact, why haven't we figured out where COVID came from, <laughs> how COVID is transmitted, and how to cure it. Why are we baffled by colds and flus? Why are we baffled? Why are we constantly changing the food wheel, the food group? <laughs> if science is, is all that, <laughs> then there should be one definite answer that is unchangeable. And so um, I'm also 
curious because I've seen a lot, particularly at United, where this kind of stuff is allowed. A lot of people going back to pagan religions and a lot of people who are going back to spiritualism and all that. And, and I, I wonder how that's going to turn out, if that's going to somehow affect their faith going forward and their involvement in denominational churches. I think that's interesting because you're right. I do see the trend that people both of like me and Katie's generation and of other generations, maybe even yours, are like find our, I don't know if it's like the particular moment in the world or just like, you know, that, or like as the decline of the church happens, people are like missing a piece they're trying to find elsewhere. But I find that like when many people are like searching for this sort of like spirituality or this deeper meaning mm -hmm. that because I believe because of the harm that church has caused many people, mm -hmm. that they don't even like consider looking back into the church, that they'd rather just like skip over that and look for that experience elsewhere, either because of their experiences in the church mm -hmm. or because of their like adverse opinions about the church. Have, do you think that's true? I think in part, but I also think that the further we become civilized, air quote civilized, the more that we become a McDonald culture. Mm -hmm. Have it your way. If you don't like the way this church is doing it, just go to another church. If you don't like the way that pastor speaks, go to another pastor. And, and I, the thing that I'm afraid of is that people are going to go into pagan religions and into traditional religions that they don't completely understand and that they think are also pure. Mm. But I'm sorry, every religion, is gonna have the human element and every religion is going to have a power element to it where people are going to misuse and abuse people so that they can be on top. So I can understand the dissatisfaction, I can understand abuse. I, you know, I've gone to my share of abused churches um, and but if you think that you're going to avoid that by just making up a religion or pulling elements from different things that you particularly like to create your own spiritual, um, your own spiritual milieu, you're going to still have the same problem because everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> you can't run away from humanity. It's interesting because a lot of my uh, liberal and progressive friends would say that that's like an inappropriate thing to say to someone who feels they've been harmed by the church. But I think you're right that, you know, that a lot of the problems that people have with churches or the church are actually like not problems with our faith, although there may be problems there, but that they're like problems with people, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, mm -hmm. that, that anytime there's a gathering of people or a structure or an idea of a thing that interacts with people or is made by people, mm -hmm. that you're always going to have these inherent problems that people carry with us. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that people will put that on the institution of the church and say that that's an occasion when you do not have to be forgiving, you do not have to be understanding, you can just block it and put away. But then when someone has been abused by a man, it's like, well, all men aren't like that. You can't just completely hate all men because one man abused you. Or if you had a mother who was abusive, well, all women aren't like that. And we need to get you to the place where you can see this person as an individual and not just damn the entire race, the entire gender or something like that. But when we get to the church, it's okay to damn the entire institution instead of recognizing that 
the church is not the building of people. The church is not the denomination. The church is not the organization. It's something else. And the way other people live in that is where we have the problem. I mean, gosh, look at all those letters that Paul and Peter and John wrote. <laughs> you know, it was a mess, and it's still a mess. Sometimes I, I think God's just going up there shaking his head or her head going, I don't know, but I made a covenant with this bunch. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to stick to the covenant. <laughs> no, I think you make a very good point because I remember, you know, growing up and until I bumped into the Methodist church in college, mm -hmm. I really had no idea that there was anything other than the denomination I grew up in. I didn't even really know that I grew up in a denomination. I just thought that like the experience that I had in my Baptist church in South Carolina down the street, mm -hmm. that that's what church was like everywhere for everybody. Mm -hmm in the world and you know I'm pretty liberal and progressive as far as Christians go mm -hmm. and I meet a lot of people who because of their beliefs otherwise like either run away or just like cut the church out of their lives and then they meet me and then go well I didn't know Christians could be like that or let alone pastors could be like that and I find that so many people who may have been hurt by the church or by people on one aspect often skip over the church in search of deeper spirituality later in life because they don't realize that the type of Christianity that may have not been good for them or hurt them isn't the only kind that exists. Exactly, um, exactly, exactly right. Um, and it's the same thing when someone assumes that the way a building is structured, that that must be the atmosphere of the building. I mean, really? Who does that? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> So, so why would you make an assumption? You know, uh, I think the same issue is I've often, you know, been in churches where they talk about, don't talk about money. <laughs> People can't stand you talking about money. And, and I've always said to myself, and it's the same kind of thing, you don't mind paying hundreds of dollars to go to a football game. You don't see that as absurd that to sit on a hard seat <laughs> and then to have to buy the food, and then to have to buy drink, you don't see that as an absurd request on your money. But you think that a church saying to keep the lights on, to keep people paid, to be able to do the programs that you yourself think are valuable in the world, we need your financial commitment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I see some of this as part and parcel of what you're saying is that people have kind of been acculturated or acclimated to think certain things about certain denominations, certain churches, uh, certain people, whatever. And we, and I blame myself too, we don't teach enough that variety is the norm, not the anomaly. And so if we get into a church and there's someone that looks at you funny, <laughs> and there are people who do, we know that. <laughs> you know that out in, the, out in the world. You know you look funny at people. You think you have a poker face, but you do not. <laughs> Good thing we've got masks now that'll help, you know, help Exactly. Well, Minnesota, it, to me, that the mask doesn't help because people always smiled with their mouth without their eyes smiling, too. So you can still see that they're not smiling with their eyes, even if they have a mask on. So sorry, Minnesota. We're so complex. Put you on that. Yes. And, but I can't hate every Minnesota. 
Minnesotan because I've had some bad experiences with Minnesotans and nobody would expect me to do that. So why then do you expect me to hate an institution because some people, even if it was a majority of that people, have treated me in a way that was harmful? And how is that healing yourself if you're carrying around the hatred and the harm? And I'm not saying that people who have been abused should get over it. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that at some point within a healing process where you recognize who to point to for the source of that hurt, so much so that it doesn't spread throughout the entire institution. We're talking a lot about, I mean, that's the, the conversation about individuals and institutions is a huge part of the conversations all of, all of us have been having all summer, right? About uh, one individual police officer versus one precinct versus one police force versus the history of policing in general. And we have those same conversations in the church as you're describing. How has this perspective been influencing you during this season, this summer season of what's been going on since May 27th? Well, it's tough because I'm the child of a police officer. Um, and I know, because I know my father, I knew my father very well, that my father probably was not the kindest person on the street. In fact, I remember my father telling me once that he felt he had to the way he did so that he was not, so that he was taken seriously and was not, you know, that the criminal element, as he wanted to call it, didn't feel like they could get over on him or that he was someone that they could destroy. And so my father, you know, had that, and then he also had the fact that he was one of the first black police officers to be um, sworn in in the Gary Police Department, which was all white. Um, and so he had this also, I'm a black man in a white world and I have to put on this, I have to present in such a way that it's going to let them know exactly who they're dealing with and that I will not be lynched physically, spiritually, mentally. You're not going to do that to me. I'm not one of those people you can do that to. So. I recognize that there are police officers who are acclimated um, to behave in really, really horrible ways, and I'm not excusing them because there's no call for that. But I also have noticed how the cop shows changed to support that. I mean, remember when it was Adam 12, officer friendly, blah, 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 just man, we just want to help out. And then we got to Hill Street Blues, where people are beating you up, throwing you in trunks. And we still have that. I mean, I tell my sister, she gets mad at me because I won't watch Blue Bloods. It's like, no, Danny is abusive. And I will not support a television <laughs> show about cops that say that that's okay. And we should honor that because they happen to sit down on a Sunday afternoon for dinner. And we know that grandpa was abusive too. So I'm not going to watch a show that says that's okay. I will not watch cops. I will not watch live on TV, whatever that one is where you watch police officers. Live PD. Live PD. Because they have gotten to that place where that's the kind of cop, the anti-hero cop, 
that we're supposed to admire. And I can just imagine a cop sitting, you know, sitting down at home watching that and it's like, yeah, that's the kind of cop I am. I'm gonna catch the perp and they're gonna, I'm gonna put the fear of whatever in them and blah, 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 blah. And they're not ever thinking that that is inappropriate. You make such a good point because cop shows are my guilty pleasure. And everyone listening to this, knowing how I feel in general about police officers, is probably like, what, Malachi loves cop shows? I love Blue Blood. But, you know, in the modern environment, right, long before George Floyd, Mm -hmm. like, I watch it with the lens that, oh, this is propaganda. It Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, like, you're right. It normalizes, like, abusive police tactics. It makes it look like not only that it's the norm, but it's the standard. I grew up my entire life. Mm-hmm. Like despising police officers who I saw mistreat people, but like loving and admiring Elliot Stapler on SVU, mm-hmm. right, all the time. And yep. now, now I can't I even know. watch it anymore, right? Because yeah. like I go back and I look at those episodes, and I can just like count how many times they like break the law, violate people's lives, mm-hmm. lie, and do all these things that we should not be encouraging. And like that was the hero. And then the particular part is they make it seem like. Like, they very rarely, like, once every two or three seasons, you might get an episode where they get it wrong. But right. it makes it look like all the other They're abuse, justified. Like, it's justified and necessary mm-hmm. and that we should just trust the abuse because they're always right anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and when, like, in reality, when you look at the real true statistics that you can get from police departments themselves, you realize that, like, those abuses quite often don't actually... Mm-hmm. result in convictions. Or you look at, uh, like, uh, Breonna Taylor's, right? Yeah. People talk about how, well, uh, her boyfriend shouldn't have been a criminal and cops should raid the house. But I go, you know, in this country, there's no way he was actually guilty because you're not going to tell me that a black man can shoot a cop in the leg, even in self-defense, and not go to jail if mm-hmm. he's actually guilty, right? There's no mm-hmm. way that mm-hmm. that man's on the street mm-hmm. if he was guilty, like, uh, of what they were accusing him of. But, like, we're just supposed to inherently trust that even though all the facts and details say otherwise, that they were doing the right thing and of they were course. doing the right just because they do. And I think, I, I tell people often that, like, you know, bad policing is, like, just as bad for, like, uh, quote-unquote good police officers as it is for, like, the people who take on the burden of the adverse effects of policing. Oh, that for doesn't sure. doesn't do them any favors Oh, either. for sure. And, and it has affected our entire community. You know, when I was appointed to um, Brunswick and Crystal, I... Yes, I gave sermons about, you know, what is the first thing you think when you see someone? And, you know, and I related it to the story um, in the Bible of Peter, you know, and how God told him not to call anything unclean. Well, are you not doing the same thing as soon as you see a police pulling someone over, assuming guilt? Our whole supposed justice system is based on that you are innocent until proven guilty. But the cop shows and the movies, you know, Lethal Weapon, I can just rattle them all. And and not that I didn't watch them, but the more I, the older I get, the more I think, you know, this is just, again, normalized, a cop's opinion of guilt way we see people and we make the assumption of guilt upon them. You know, it's, it's you know, rife through the medical centers, too. Uh, when I was doing my CPE last summer, um, I kept seeing the word noncompliant because it's, that's the nice way to say that this person should be forgotten about and, not, and treated as if they are, you know, not worth your time because they're non-compliant. And often when I would go into the room of a so 
a, a so-called non-compliant patient. Uh, the patient was just someone who was very concerned about their rights and knew their rights and weren't afraid to tell you that they had rights and you couldn't treat them that way. And so... Um, so non-compliance is actually just like good boundaries. <laughs> Ex of, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But we, I think we're in such a place now where we just expect people to just do what I say, when I say it, how I say it, and be quick in a hurry in it. And we don't recognize that you don't have that power over person. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into our president, but our president is exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. Do what I say, how I say, why I say it, and don't ask any questions. Mm -hmm. And police officers and nurses and whoever don't recognize that restraining someone is painful. And so the fact that they're moving around is not because they're trying to be disrespectful, it hurts, <laughs> and they should be allowed to feel pain, and it's a natural reaction to being harmed. Um, and there's fear, and, there's, and all this is escalating, because we now have so many occasions where people haven't survived certain restraints, right? So that's going through your mind, and the people are behind yelling and screaming because they recognize that this is a dangerous situation, but you expect someone to not say a word, to not move, to not struggle, because I told you to. And the time to recognize that maybe the restraint is hurting them, and we should look at the pain first, and then deal with the other stuff later on. Yeah, and I just want to reiterate what I said before, that like the system, though it's deadly to black people, that it's not fair to law enforcement either, right? right. You, if you look at the amount of time that MPD officers get trained on violence versus the amount of time they get trained on escalation, on some level, that's not their fault because they don't train themselves and they don't get to pick get to pick the curriculum that they are trained into, right? Mm -hmm. And they are taught by people who've been doing this years before them that like, this is the way. But if you look, I believe, and who's ever listening can fact check me, that like less than 3% of MPD calls require an armed response. Mm -hmm. So then why is the bulk of their training geared towards armed response, mm -hmm. right? It's like incredibly lopsided, the amount of training they get for mm -hmm. de-escalation versus like the well over 100 hours they get of like how to use firearms. So like if the actual job the bulk of it does not require them to even touch their gun in most situations, then why is the bulk of their training geared towards these few scenarios where they will need it? And no one ever really thinks about like how that ends up becoming a disservice to both uh, the tools in the police officer's toolbox mm -hmm. and then the interactions with the communities that therefore proceed from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's something that has evolved too, you know. Um, don't know if it was the 80s or the 90s it had to be the 90s because in the 80s when I was a community organizer for the city of Minneapolis we actually had a program that was called uh, oh shoot I'm forgetting it already um, it was a program done by community crime prevention at one time community crime prevention was not a part of the police department it was its own city office and the police department uh, had liaisons between us and so we had a program where each of us organizers had a number of officers that worked with us and we did a lot of those non <laughs> you know nonviolent kind of calls on people so that people could know that this officer is in your neighborhood and 
you can actually call them when they're on duty and you know they will check to make sure that things are going on okay and block you know block clubs and all this kind of stuff and it was canceled primarily because when the police chief changed someone else came in who was more of a hardliner and wanted to go back to what they call strict policing and you're right that they allowed these military organizations in to do the training and the military organizations their their first words out of their mouths to you is go home alive see every situation as your potential death now if i'm doing any job and that's what's drilled in my head I'm going to assume that I need to have my gun ready to be drawn at any moment. I'm going to assume that I need to be the aggressor uh, at any moment if the whole idea is I need to go home alive, right? Because, and, and, and I've always wondered why, because the number of police officers that are killed is not skyrocketing and wasn't skyrocketing then, but this company, these companies were trying to make some money. You know, they're like mercenary companies, and they were trying to branch out of the mercenary business, and they branched into the police department. So I feel bad in some ways that the police officers kind of got saddled with that kind of training and this undue fear of their lives being at risk in every single call. Um, but I also think, why are you individually so stupid that you don't recognize that that's not the truth? That's yet another propaganda that's being handed you. That's yet another perspective. Why don't, why don't you have a bigger perspective than that? You're a thinking human being. But I, I'm constantly amazed at and I have to put Americans in, lump them in, sorry, I'm going to stereotype all of us, that mm -hmm. Americans just, just seem to be, they just gobble up every story. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as that story, a new story comes along, they just gobble up all that story. And as soon as another story, and I don't understand what has happened educationally, societally, whatever, that hasn't really produced thinking people. I don't understand that. People who can make judgments based on facts and can understand what might be a fact and what might, what might not be. You know, the last past four years has just had me just completely scratching my head because it was like, where is the cognitive thinking? <laughs> I was thinking, actually, that stems into my question I had, which is, uh, well, quickly, how, so how long have you been in Minneapolis? Um, I've been in the Twin Cities since 75, and I think I moved into Minneapolis maybe in the 80s, at some point in the 80s, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I was just thinking what, I was curious what else, I mean, you've been talking about the shifts that you've seen in, in policing and crime prevention. What other shifts and changes have you seen over, uh, over the last 30 years or so? in the Twin Cities around around race and how, uh, race and culture and, um, yeah, how, how is that something that you've seen shift over time? How have you experienced that too? Not just in the conversation, yeah. but how have you experienced it? Well, I think there's been kind of a breakdown 
um, of unity amongst people. Um, when I first was working in North Minneapolis, uh, everybody supported the North Minneapolis school system. You know, they supported all the games that happened and all the activities in the parks and everybody knew each other and really, I mean, it was, it was in a way kind of daunting because one of the first questions they would ask you when you would meet someone was, who are your people? <laughs> If your people weren't from North Minneapolis, then it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so you knew you had to wait a while before you were actually usher, ushered in. But uh, now I, I don't get, I get more of a sense that it's me and mine. And, you know, that I want to care more about if my family has enough and we can get through it. And, and it's not to say that there aren't people who are still out there being, you know, being community minded, but it's not the same kind of vibe as when I first came here. Um, and I, I, I bemoan that. Interesting. So growing up, and I would say even as an adult and even as a pastor, I have experienced like uh, many churches is being inward. That's like no longer involved outwardly in their communities. And I don't know where it happened. I would say that I believe that America and in particular capitalism teaches us that like life is a zero sum game. And that's part of what makes people go, well, me and mine first. And then maybe mm -hmm. everyone else has an afterthought because we sort of get taught that like for someone to have something, it means for you and yours to have less. But I wonder like where along the line did it become that many churches become like more of like inward social clubs as opposed to being like thoroughly involved outside of the walls with things that happened uh, in the neighborhood and among the people. Well, I really think it depends on the church. For sure, for sure. I mean, because Walker's never been that way. I mean, everything I've known about Walker uh, is that they've always been an outward church. I mean, Park Avenue has been for a long time a very outward facing church, but I think, what becomes a problem is when people create what I call plantations, where they see that their giving to the community is not really so that they can go off and do what they need to do, but so that we can say, here's our little chilling. <laughs> you know, we fed them, we've clothed them, we freed them from the prisons, but they're our children. You know, they can't go off and become stand-up people on their own, great citizens, move out of our communities and start their own churches. No, they're our children. And this, to me, is what has caused church. The failure of that is what caused churches to become more insular. Well, we fed them, we clothed them, and they went off on their own. So obviously, we're not doing our job. So maybe we need to pull back in, figure out what we need to do, because we expected that was going to benefit us, that when we fed and we clothed and we freed from the prisons, that that was going to benefit us. So I constantly am telling the churches I'm involved in that you have to figure out first, what is your motivation? And if you're really looking at Jesus, Jesus taught the disciples, raised them to apostles, and then sent them out to do what they needed to be doing, and then left. 
You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's not like saying that he was going to stick around forever and say, these are my children and I need to, you know, and I need to make sure every little thing that they're doing is within my rules and they're doing it the way I want it done for the benefit of me. Hmm. Wow. And maybe that's the capitalism that's religified. <laughs> we can make that word up. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, I think it's certainly right that a lot of churches, now that you say it, whether they will say it outright, think that if they, like, help you or assist you, that whether they or not they will say it, that they expect, like, your membership and when you're stable, your money in exchange for the help they gave you, which is quite antithetical to, like, what Christ taught in the gospel. Jesus was never like, well, I'll help you if you become Christian and get in line and follow me with the rest of these people. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Now that you've had your loaves and your fishes, <laughs> what are you going to do for me? <laughs> well, and, you know, and institutions kind of breed that kind of mentality because the way that you identify whether an institution is successful is by numbers and by money. And if you don't have, because we don't do qualitative studies, and we don't use qualitative methods to decide about success. And that's someplace where we need to start thinking. We need to start thinking about not just the numbers, you know, um, how, do we, how do we measure spiritual formation? How do we measure uh, spiritual maturity? And isn't that enough to say that one has been successful? If someone has made it through the walk and are continuing the walk what's been on your heart and your mind this summer in this kind of pandemic George Floyd uh, protests and the uprising what's been on your mind and heart this summer and and how has that been a part of your church life as well I guess the one word that comes to my mind is hunger because I've seen so many people just really hungry for lots of things, the sense that we're going to survive this or we're going to get through this or whatever happens next is going to be okay even if it's different. Uh, hunger for the knowledge that they're not in this alone. Hunger for the sense that the communities that they may feel a little disenfranchised from right now um, won't be the end of them, that there are still other communities. Um, you don't have to go back to the other community. You can find a new one. Um, and it's, it's been very interesting to me because the being an introvert, COVID has not been very hard on me because I have always lived alone, except for my little four-legged fuzzy child. Uh, <laughs> And it didn't bother me that I couldn't go to a movie or couldn't go to an outdoor concert or I can't go to a restaurant. It's like, okay, I have a nice backyard. I can, you know, I can cook up some food on my barbecue grill and I can sit there and I can watch a movie if I want. Um, but what, what pained me was seeing so many of the people that I knew were privileged in every way. More money than most people I had, bigger houses than most people I knew, um, married so that they weren't raising a child by themselves, bemoaning the fact 
that they couldn't get their nails done or they couldn't drop their kids off for six hours while they go and do whatever. And on the other hand, having people who are in a nursing home and they can't get a visit um, and they don't have an iPad in there so that they can tune in to whatever. And now, you know, and, and pretty soon they weren't even able to have a meal in the communal space. They have to eat their meals in their room. And comparing the hunger just for the face of someone different, the voice of someone different um, coming into their space, and these other people who really have everything but still hungering. <laughs> was something that was just kind of boggling my mind. And I found in my last semester of seminary constantly being the one saying, I know that's hard, but you're not looking for a job right now. You have a spouse who's taking care of your kid while you're here or you're in class. You have a backyard. Some of you have pools. <laughs> so I'm not saying that it's not rough, but I'm saying that maybe rather than focusing on how horrible it is, you think about this is a very opportune moment to be grateful and to consider those who don't have what you have. And it changed a lot for people once they started thinking that. Once it got past being angry at me <laughs> for bringing up the fact that you can complain, there's nothing wrong with it, but you could choose not to. And you could choose to think about, well, you know, I got a whole cupboard full of food that I know I'm gonna, not gonna eat. Why don't I box that up and take it down to the shelter? Why don't I, if I really need to get out, why don't I take a walk? If I really need to get out, why don't I put my mask on and go volunteer somewhere? If I really need to get out, you know what I'm saying? There were ways, you have a car, you have gas, you're being paid to sit at home. There are ways for you to make that work so that you can be engaged. But then I think about all these other people who don't have a car, lost their job, and they're stuck at home in a heated, you know, it's hot because they don't have an air conditioner, mm -hmm. space with five kids. Mm -hmm. So how about we just shift things a little bit? How can I help them out? And then that way both you can feel like you're doing something useful and they can get something useful. Yeah, it's like very obvious, obvious that you uh, come to this table with like a wealth of experience. Uh, and so I'd like to hear some about what your experience as a black woman has been, uh, not just in the UMC, but in the church in general. And maybe you can talk about some of the differences, if there are some, about the way that like your identity has been received in like Christian circles that are predominantly black or non-white versus ones that are predominantly white mm -hmm. and, and how you navigate that. Mm -hmm. mm. Wow. Yeah, I think in, we'll, we'll use mixed company. <laughs> different races and ethnicities and ages. What I found the most frustrating to me is that Minnesota constantly now has this phrase where they want you to be your whole self, your authentic self. And whenever I have tried to abide by that, 
I find, yeah, it's not even a pat on, it's a punch in the face, it's a punch in the gut. Yeah, you are, you are not, okay, is that the, that's the authentic? Oh, wait a minute, maybe we should have put some caveats there. Maybe we should have told you what kind of authentic we want to see. <laughs> and I wish they would, because I constantly say in Minnesota, just tell me what you want. The problem is that you constantly say something, ask me to trust that that's the truth, and then I have to find out it's not the truth. And I have had that problem in so many circles, so many jobs, where I read the list of expectations, I exceed the list of expectations, but because I didn't exceed it in the way they wanted me to, then somehow I have to get a rip in my, you know, in my, my um, personnel folder because I didn't do it the way it, it was wanted to be done. And I find that equally in Minnesota, when I'm in all black situations, it's also somewhat uncomfortable because if I'm in North Minneapolis, everybody knows I'm not a true North Minneapolis, North Minneapolitan. And so they can talk circles around me about this person and that person and whatever because I don't know them. I haven't been here you know, long enough to know all of the history. Um, and so I've really come to this conclusion um, that Minnesota is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't have that problem when I'm in mixed company or all black communities outside of the state. And so I've always kind of thought, is it a problem because there hasn't been a majority of black people here and so they feel like they have to circle the wagons and they have to constantly decide who's in and who's out because that's the way they're treated. So it's maybe you know something that's been learned and with white Americans, I've, Minnesotans, I feel like most of their contact is through, I don't know, television, movies, music videos. And so they're constantly approaching a person of color with their own idea of what that's supposed to look like and how that's supposed to sound. And I remember one time, for example, I'm at Hamlin, um, Julian Bond comes to speak. And one of my classmates' family drove all the way up to, all the way down, I don't know, from somewhere in Minnesota to see that. And we were walking out together, white family and me, and he said, wasn't that just powerful? And I didn't actually like what he had to say, so I said, well, not really. I mean, he kind of went over old ground. He didn't really break any new ground. He's not saying anything that's not kind of the party line of his speeches. I really was looking for something inspiring and uplifting. And they said, how is it possible that you couldn't like Julian Bond? And I said, well, not all black people like all black people. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was just a complete shock. And it's like, but you don't have to like all white people. Why can't, you know, but, but it, it's, it's, it's constantly that kind of thing. I feel like most of my time, and this is probably what has made me an introvert, because I don't think I came here as an introvert. 
<laughs> is that you have to work so hard figuring out what's going on and what people really mean when they say and how far you really can go, how honest you really can be, how you can couch things. I had one person in my CPE tell me, she's also from out of the state, she said, when you tell white Minnesota something, you, Minnesota something, you have to set a pillow. So true. And then when you hit them with your truth, they have somewhere soft to land. <laughs> so if I'm constantly thinking about where is the pillow, how to set the pillow, how to get enough of them so everybody has a soft place, and then getting angry about why do I have to do that? Why can't I just say what I need to say? You get to say what you need to say. You see that? And then I have to bring Christ into it. <laughs> What would Christ do in this situation? Christ would be loving. He would, you know, this, is this the time when I can turn over the tables and say, you brood of vipers? Or do I need to hold back on that one? Is this the time when I can be Jeremiah? Or is this the time when I really need to be Mary? I'm just your hand, sir. You know, and it's that kind of twisting and turning that I think that people of color have to do that is the reason we have obesity and is the reason we have high blood pressure and is the reason we have strokes and heart failure. It's not because we're eating greens. <laughs> it's because it's difficult to live in this world and if you, if you give a darn, if you want to be successful, if you don't care, it's easy. If you don't want to be successful, it's easy. But if you have a certain sense, and I'll make a copy, if you have a certain sense of what success is, um, and that's what you want to achieve, then there's so much twisting constantly that you have to go through. So of course, when I'm done twisting, I want to go to my hallowed place, and I want to be left alone, <laughs> which is kind of being an introvert. I feel that like so deeply. Well, unless Katie has any other questions, I think this is it. And this is the point where we give you the last word or the closing thoughts. So is there anything that's gone unsaid that you want to say or anything in particular you want to leave us or the listeners with uh, as we depart from here today? Well, I think after everything I've said, I, I really have to exhort everyone to be kind with themselves, to recognize that it's not that this is unprecedented. I mean... Black people have been killed by police officers and have had crowds that have cheered them on for centuries. Uh, we have had pandemics before. We've had, you know, bad presidents before. We've had bad Congress people before. This is not unprecedented, but it does give us an, a great opportunity to think about what kind of world we really want to live in and not just think and imagine about it, but figure out how you are going to be involved in seeing that that happens. And that if we can be kind to ourselves and link our hands together and join each other strength to strength, then we actually can have a better world. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for some ways to serve Brooklyn Center specifically or trying to invest in anti-racism work going on, especially in the United Methodist Church, you can go to minnesotaumc.org and there's an article about Brooklyn Center and also a banner at the top where you can donate to the Just Love campaign. Stay well.